0: 52 episodes, 52 ordinary people, 52 real stories about things that affect overall health. Because there is a lot more that goes into being healthy than food and fitness. Inspiration, support, a new perspective and knowledge. You'll find that and more here on the HealthAbility
1: Project. Hi, and welcome to the special edition of the Health Ability Project. I'm Robin McKenna. May is Women's Health Month, and so the episodes this month are dedicated to some very important women's health topics. On this episode, we are going to talk about women's health equity, what it is, why it's important, the state of women's health equity both abroad and here in the U.S., and we're going to hear how health equity has impacted the overall health and well-being of women. My guests today are Caroline Weinberg, Jennifer Fink, and Marissa Fair. Jennifer is Chief Strategy Officer at Lutec Industries, a woman-owned and operated medical technology company. Lutec's mission is to create medical solutions that allow healthcare providers to deliver top-quality care while improving the patient experience. Jennifer's work in the femtech space has led to the creation of the first high-definition, fully portable, and telemedicine-capable colposcope that expands access to life-saving cervical cancer screening and treatment in remote and low-resource settings around the world. Caroline Weinberg is executive director and founder of Plan A, a free mobile reproductive health clinic in the Mississippi Delta. And Marissa Fair, who was the very second guest on the Healthability Project podcast, is a 22-year veteran of the medtech industry and the founder and CEO of Her Health EQ, a nonprofit working to improve the health outcomes of women by providing essential medical equipment to developing regions around the world. Their projects are touching lives in India, Tanzania, Burkina Faso, Vietnam, Costa Rica, Jamaica, and rural Mississippi. Ladies, I can't thank you enough for being here today. This is this is just going to be such a great uh, conversation. So thank you. Thank you very much. And I would love to start it off with, Marissa, if you could explain for our listeners what exactly health equity is and then We're just going to have an open conversation of why it's important, what is going on in the areas that you focus on, share a little bit about your background, and then obviously also the stories that you've come across in the work that you do. So thanks very much, Marissa. Yeah, so just to level set, health equity is making sure that everyone has
2: the equipment, the tools, and everything to be be almost viewing at the same level, but the types of health outcomes that are needed are different for where you're you're working and you're living. So while to give an example, to, to make it very obvious and tech contextualized, somewhere in the U.S., it's standard of care to have a mammogram for your breast cancer screening. But in other remote regions of the U.S. and other parts of the world, that equipment is not available. So ensuring that there are ultrasounds or handheld other diagnostic equipment or thermal imaging scans that are providing similar types of outcomes and um, responses to to make sure diagnoses to make sure that there's still care. It just looks different depending on where you live. And so um, health equity is. And especially in the context, I think all of us are, we're, you know, I know a lot of us are working in healthcare and, and in the medical device industry as well, is making sure that the correct kind of equipment is available for where anybody is living. And it doesn't have to be the same
1: mm-hmm.
2: across the board. That's not necessarily what equity is. It's making sure that there is care for a particular health condition
1: mm-hmm. wherever anyone happens to be. Right. Great. Right. So, ladies, why why is health equity so important? Do you each want to take a take a crack at that?
2: Sure. I mean, I'll start, and then I'll you know stop talking, which is great, <laughs>
1: uh, which is always
2: great when we're on uh, joint uh, joint calls too. So, um, you know, health equity is important because all people deserve access to healthcare, regardless of where they live. And again, it, it will look it potentially looks different depending mm-hmm. on where they live. And so, everybody a woman, a man, a child if you live in midtown Manhattan, or you live in rural Mississippi, or you live in a remote region in Tanzania, all deserve access to health care. And so, that's why health equity is important to make sure that there is an equitable standard of care, that there is care and health care for everybody. And it shouldn't be dependent on where you live having access to quality
1: healthcare. Thanks. Jennifer? Yeah, to add to that, I
3: think everything Marissa said, except to add that it shouldn't matter what your gender is either. So being able to address, you know, those specific needs for women um, everywhere in the US and, and abroad as well, regardless of you know, race, um, class, economics, all of those things, having, having everything be accessible that is needed for both men and women.
0: I would just add, I mean, healthcare from my perspective and I'm sure from everyone on this call is a human right. So everybody deserves access regardless of where they live, what their background is, who they are. Everybody should have access to, to equitable healthcare. But I think uh, an additional element of it though is that the, one of the reasons healthcare equity is so important um, is just because like, there are so many inequities like across the board facing people in their lives. And when you are living an unhealthy life, it sets you back in everything else. You miss work days. So it impacts like your economic future. You miss school so that you can't like move ahead in whatever career path you want. You're not able to take care of your kids. The kids whose parents are, um, are suffering from health issues, sometimes have health issues of their own. Like it's this whole spiraling effect or if we don't focus on making sure that people have access to the healthcare and the healthcare treatment that they need, it's just this like ripple effect that, um, that uh, exacerbates all of the other inequities that people are also facing in their everyday life.
1: I would also gather that creating this health equity, this access to care, oftentimes allows women to be aware of of a condition that is progressing to to a negative state and and would allow an individual, I guess, man or woman, to seek treatment earlier on in in a disease or a condition versus if they did not have access to this health care, they might not learn of the issue until it's too late or when care becomes very expensive or difficult to endure. It's that, and it's also sometimes people um, like we
0: had. I, I run this mobile women's health clinic in, in rural Mississippi. And one of the reasons that we ended up um, getting a coposcope, which we actually got from Lutex, was because um, we had patients who you're supposed to get a pap smear every three or five years, depending on kind of what kind of test you've had. And we had patients who were coming in who had either had a positive pap in the past or hadn't had one in you know, five, 10 years. And they would say, well, I don't have insurance, and if I had an abnormal path I know I wouldn't be able to do anything about it, so, like, why find out, basically? Um, which is, I mean, it's, and so that's, that's the point at which we were like, okay, well, we clearly need a call the because putting off care because you can't do anything about a problem is obviously not a solution, but it's the situation that a lot of people are faced with, is that you, um, you put off care either because you don't want to know because you can't do anything about it, so, like, why see the horror that's ahead of you, or because you? And sometimes things advance because if you can't afford to, or can't physically get the care that you need, by the time you finally get there, things have progressed to a point where uh, you can't necessarily take care of it. Like the the kind of classic example is like casting and treating diabetes early versus someone showing up where it's so advanced that they have limb amputated um, because you can't get access to that consistent care you need.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, can I just add? Also, I think. Um, to add to what both of you are saying, you know, the, the presence of trauma also increases your likelihood of having, um, you know, cervical cancer, other cancers, heart disease. And so being aware of that, I think, in certain environments... And that allows you to, um, you know, look for certain indicators of like heart disease and cervical cancer, things like that earlier so that you can detect it that way. So I think it's both, um, you know, kind of like what Caroline's doing with a mobile clinic, making sure that she's providing access to women who don't have that standard annual or every three year fat, but also, you know, considering the population that you're working with and understanding what they're predisposed to um, and if there's trauma there and, you know, prevalence of trauma allows you to detect these things earlier.
1: Mm -hmm. Jennifer, tell us a little bit more about Lutech, the colposcope, and and the work that you're doing out there in the field. Thanks
3: for that question. Um, Yeah, Lutech, um, we're a woman-owned company, and we manufacture medical equipment like digital colposcopes. And so um, just in case people don't know what colposcopes are, a woman will receive, like here in the U.S., a PAP, and um, that will indicate whether there's further information needed to determine if there's um, cervical cancer or predisposition to cervical cancer. And the next step would be to get a colposcopy, which is a visualization of the cervix, to determine if there's um, next steps needed. So we Uh, make the uh, first, we brought to market the first high definition digital pulposcope back in 2016. And so we use digital technology instead of something like a microscope that's easier to use and it um, connects to computer or telemedicine and allows providers to track changes over time and use that uh, to refer to other specialists. And it's kind of like a more updated version of that. So what we do here in the U.S. is we provide our colposcopes to uh, private practices, teaching facilities, mobile clinics, um, sexual assault, uh, forensic nurse examiners, child advocacy centers, anybody who um, is looking for an innovative, more up-to-date piece of equipment that will allow for um internal exams and uh, colposcopies
1: what have you seen or have you heard when this mobile colposcope is brought to a community somewhere in africa i know you've you've been working in a, in many different countries and and when we spoke you had shared with me a whole bunch of really fascinating things as far as the impact of of the work that you're doing i'd love to for the audience to hear a little bit more about that So
3: um, Marissa has a nonprofit, Her Health EQ, and um, she can tell you much more about what they do. But basically, um, she works to facilitate the donation of medical equipment specifically for women's health in areas where um, that might be lacking. And so she has a project that we've partnered with her on, it's called the 10 for 10 project, where 10 countries have been selected to receive 10 colposcopes each, which will hopefully expand access to cervical cancer screening for 480,000 women a year. Hmm. So
0: in, in country?
3: Uh, total, all over and that would be every year. So these devices will last, you know, greater than 10 years. So hopefully in each country by the time, <laughs> you know, it's done. Um, so in Ghana specifically, there's this amazing um, doctor out of the Catholic hospital in Batur, Ghana, who has been studying concurrent HPV DNA testing with visual inspection with a colposcope, which means basically uh, a path and a visual inspection at the same time to increase the chance of a one-time diagnosis and treatment. And so we're fundraising to donate those 10 colposcopes where he will set up a national program so that Midwives can go out into rural areas of Ghana to places where the women there maybe can't afford to take a three-hour trip into a hospital or pay for childcare, care. And the, um, the nurses can come to their location and set up a, a diagnostic center, similar to what Caroline's doing in areas here, um, to provide on-the-spot Screening and then treatment for parts of the population that wouldn't necessarily have access to this care otherwise. Yeah, one of the things that we really have to understand, especially on a global scale,
2: is that the infrastructure is not not similar to what we have. So I'm not saying that the remote regions only have dirt roads. I'm not saying that. But when you talk about outside of you know a suburban area, periurban area the infrastructure is not there. So these this is sometimes maybe once, maybe twice in their entire lifetime are women having access to cervical cancer screenings, um, you know, maternal screenings, breast cancer screenings, all of these things. And so, you know, having things that are more handheld, ha- you know, having smaller devices, having remote um, and, and traveling systems, um, you know, in the U.S. and also around the world, like we have to consider that care should and can be delivered where the patients are and we need to meet them where they are because we cannot expect any woman every year to take off an entire day of work and whatever work means that could be, you know, that could be in the field, that could be in a shop, that could be in a job that could be, you know, caring for their children to have the time every single year to come for an annual screening and, you know, take the time off and, you know, what is, what does that mean? Is there also social, you know, social and societal norms that that is not normal to have, unless you were pregnant to, to get screened for, you know, for other types of diseases. A lot of people just in, in, in you know, the, the world, a lot of people just think women's health is delivering a baby. Mm. And unfortunately there's a whole lot of other things that happen throughout a woman's body and throughout a woman's lifetime. And so, um, when we think about it on a global scale, have to serve the patients where they are, and oftentimes that's not with a massive piece of piece of equipment. And you know, when we're talking about remote systems, you know, Caroline is you know is doing it incredibly in in Mississippi. But then we talk about like like those mobile systems wouldn't even get and be able to, to, to traverse in some of these more rural right. regions and, you know, in other locations, mm-hmm. you know, rainy seasons and, um, you know, and, and floods and, 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 uh, even droughts and things like that. Like, like, you know, there's also people who are moving around. I mean, you think about it as in conflict areas, mm-hmm. people are moving around so quickly and so dramatically, just because you set up a location there last year, it could not be there again. And I'm not saying that like this, you know, that the rest of the world is very, you know, war torn and all of that, but like. You have to understand when we're talking about more remote regions, you know, it's not that there's a highway connecting it to get you there. Mm-hmm.
1: Tell us, how is the you, the work that you're doing down in, in the Mississippi Delta, how is that being received and what kind of stories are you hearing? And and is it, is it a van that is traveling to different communities or is it multiple vans? What exactly is mobile by your definition um, or your program? Ours is a truck, um, which is a very important distinction
0: if you're the person who's driving it. But um, <laughs> the, the conceptually, it is a mobile clinic. that is is an exam room on wheels. So ours is a as I said a truck with with two fully functional exam rooms um, that can do basically any type of healthcare. You know, they're set up to do pap and colposcopies and IUDs and STD tests and HIV tests. We can kind of we can do, we can do it all in our in our clinic. And it focuses really on reproductive and sexual health care. And one of the things that, so mobile clinics are a remarkable way of getting care to like some of the most vulnerable communities, both internationally and in the U.S. It addresses like the major barriers to care of distance. So people have to travel a really far distance to get to the care that they actually need. That is, if they can afford it. A lot of people in our communities are either uninsured or underinsured, which means they're insured technically, but they can't afford their copays or their medications. So their insurance is pointless, essentially. And also the time, you know, it takes a really long time to travel from A to B in some of these rural areas. If you don't have a car, you have to find someone who can give you a ride. If you can't find someone who can give you a ride, you have to hitchhike or you have to put off care. And the advantage of things like these mobile clinics is that they can bring care directly into those small communities. Our average town size is less than 900 people. And what people always say when we go into them is like, thank you for not forgetting that we need help too. Because there is this expectation that you'll just kind of figure out how to get to the doctor, even though it's two hours away and you'll have to take time off work and you have to coordinate it. And if you want to go to a doctor that you can afford, you might have to travel five hours away. And it's just these astronomical barriers to care. And that's why mobile health is so important. But I also think a really important element of this is that we've allowed women's health to be kind of set aside as a separate topic from broader healthcare, Mm -hmm. And that means that there are a lot of primary care providers who just like don't deal with the stuff that they consider like the women's stuff. Like they won't do pap smears and they don't talk about family planning and they don't do that stuff because when they were trained, that was like, that was the lady doctor part. And then there's the primary care part and the two don't get combined. And that's a really, really big problem when you're talking about rural communities, because if you, if it is so hard for you to get yourself in front of a provider, like when you get to that provider, they should be hitting you with every single thing they can possibly give you. Like if you go there because you need your blood pressure checked, they should be offering you an HIV test. They should be offering you family planning. They should offer you STD testing. Like I get that a dermatologist maybe is, doesn't have their office set up for a pap smear but that doesn't mean they can't offer you birth control. And so we really do need to stop kind of these divisions of, of who can do what kind of healthcare especially when you're in rural communities, especially when you're international And having accessible and low-cost testing equipment like colposcopes, like rapid tests for different diseases is so important to decrease those barriers. And the easier they are to use and the cheaper they are, the more accessible they are to bring to everyone. You know, like we, I can give someone a rapid syphilis test for $12. And that is the difference between doing it right there versus paying, you know, $50 to send out the test and then you have to track down the patient with the results and all this stuff. So the faster we can streamline things with tech kind of the more, the more we can get people while they're right in front of us. Sorry, I, I love, love that. So box t- so my soapbox
3: topic. <laughs> yeah, well, I loved it. I was here for it, so I would like to just add with the tech. You know, I I love that. That's what so many people are doing now here in the U.S. and abroad with telehealth platforms, integrating them. Um, you know, we we kind of talked a little bit earlier about the work that we're doing in the sexual assault space. A lot of states and programs are using telehealth with specialized sexual assault examiners in other locations so that when you're in a rural area and you've been sexually assaulted and you have to travel three hours to a hospital and then you have to wait three hours for the specialized examiner to come, instead of having that process take six hours for the survivor, they're able to use an ER nurse who's not specially trained, log into a telehealth platform where a sexual assault nurse examiner is logging in from home, and they're able to advise that ER nurse or doctor on how to perform a trauma-informed exam that collects the proper evidence and treats them on the medical side as well. Um, I just, I love that. I love that we're able to use all of this new technology to make the experience much better for the patient, as well as easier for the providers as well.
1: Right. And making the access or making the process of the particular care that they're going going for easier for the patient, especially in, in the circumstance of sexual assault, the peace of mind that that gives the patient is so, so valuable, just mitigates the stress, mitigates the worry, they feel safe, right? Yeah.
3: Definitely. Yeah, that's that trauma-informed care aspect, I think, like leading with the idea that there ha- whether it's in the sexual assault space or OBGYN or somewhere else, you know, just acknowledging that um what is the statistic? One in five women have been sexually assaulted in the US. Mm. And that's probably underreported. So Um, you know, just leading with that concept that there's the potential for trauma to have existed and it might prevent somebody from asking the right questions or seeking the right care. And that the provider at that time is kind of the doorway to other, what Caroline was saying, like the doorway to other services and, and the opportunity to be treated for other issues, anxiety, depression, whatever. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So what, can the average person do to help this movement of health equity, to help support you ladies and, and everybody else that is out there working to literally on the ground, like Caroline in particular, to bring health equity to women in rural or disconnected communities? What, what can somebody like I do other than write a check? Is there, are there volunteer opportunities? Are there, I don't know, other awareness activities that we could, we could embark on thoughts, suggestions? Well, I mean, there's always check writing that helps, like you said, Robin.
2: <laughs> so, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna diminish. No, the no complaints here. Carol, Caroline, and I will both take them. So, you know, <laughs> I mean, we we cannot ever say no to no to checks. So that's one. I mean, you know, with any nonprofit, there's obviously boards, uh, board of directors, and boards of advisors, and there's advocates, people, Robin, like you, who want to get the message out, and there's other people who should just be talking about it. Listen, just people starting to talk about it and caring about what this is starts those conversations and starts getting people involved. And then, you know, it's, it, it could be anything from, volunteering and helping on a marketing campaign or going to a march or doing a race and raising money or, you know, even going for a walk or whatever, like kids having lemonade stands. I mean, you know, there's there's so many ways to do this. It's people going out and speaking about it. It's listening to podcasts. It's hearing about other people in this world that are outside of often our, you know, our small little bubbles Mm -hmm. and to understand that there are people probably, you know, people, most people who are listening to the podcast are probably incredibly fortunate. And there are people, most people who are not like that. And, you know, not to say that everything needs to be charity, but it's more having an understanding that people are at different levels. And that doesn't mean that they don't deserve healthcare as Caroline said, healthcare is a human right Mm -hmm. around the world, no matter who you are. And so the fact of the matter is that's what health equity is, making sure that every single human has access to healthcare. And so thinking about it, caring about it, volunteering. So any, any person can do that and can start the conversation and you can have a conversation with somebody else because you also don't know if they don't know. And you've just educated somebody new and opened their eyes up to something different. And I think that's how movements start. That's how revolutions start. That's how change happens is it's typically one person at a time.
0: Right. Right. I, so, so yeah, second, obviously like donations make a huge difference, you know, and and everybody, obviously like everyone who runs a nonprofit is chasing that million dollar gift, but like $50, like a customer costs $50. So Mm -hmm. little gifts,
1: Many, so hands light Many hands make light work. Many hands make light work. But in addition
0: to that, what I would just say is that everything's terrible right now, right? Like <laughs> the state of, the state of pretty much everything is awful and it's very easy to get, to focus on how terrible everything is. And, and I think that it's, it's important to like sit in that for a minute, but I also think like, don't sit in that to the point that you forget that there's always something you can do. And I can guarantee you that every single human being on the planet has some skill that someone at some nonprofit who's working on health equity can figure out how to put to good use. If you're a good writer, you can help with grant applications. If you're a good artist, you can help with graphic design. If you're a good, if you know how to drive, you can volunteer how to drive patients from their homes to providers' offices. There's literally always something you can do. So feeling like, oh, I don't have money, I can't help a nonprofit, or oh, I you know, I can't sit on a board, whatever, that's not an excuse. Like there's always something that you can do and you can reach out to a nonprofit that is, or a company, whatever, that is doing work that you think is good and just say like, these are my skills, can you use them? And find a place to put them to use because there's always something that you know how to do that a, some small nonprofit where everyone on their team is doing 400 different jobs will happily give you one of those 400 to take on for yourself. So just think about what you have to offer and um, and try to figure out a way to contribute that to people who are fighting the fight to increase access to health equity, both in the U.S. and, and around the world
2: and I also think there's a really important movement that's starting to happen in corporations too. It, you know, some of these volunteer days and um, give back days and things like that. So even people at corporations, so like tell your company that you want to have a give back day or that you want to, you know, work with their CSR teams to, you know, to, to work with one of these, one of our types of organizations mm-hmm. or um, things like that. Be our advocate inside companies as well, because, companies have far more capital most of the time than individuals and so if you have an advocate in a company Mm -hmm. then that helps tremendously just to get to the right person to speak with Mm -hmm. we don't ask you to speak for us we ask to get us in front of the right people who can make those decisions so that we can tell them what we do and why we need their help and then also how we can engage their employees. We all know that employee engagement right now is one of the hottest topics Mm -hmm. and it's so necessary to retain talent. Mm -hmm. So making sure that your employees are active and caring and know that they're working for a company that actually cares about something and does it. And even if it's one day a week or, or one day a year or one day a quarter, or however, you know, companies do it differently, or maybe they'll give you time off that's paid to volunteer. And that could be could be painting a clinic. I mean, in the in, in in a lot of the emerging markets that we work in, a lot of these volunteer days are going into the communities that they can access because they're local and handing out pamphlets or pieces of paper to say these services are coming, or they this is why they're important, or they exist. You know, go get a pap smear, go get a you know a, a, a cervical cancer test screening, go get you know a mammogram, go get these things. This can save your life and. It's not as Americans coming in to do this. It is a local community empowering their own local community Mm -hmm. to do that. And, you know, this is where employees and employers can work together and really catalyze the work that nonprofits are doing. And knowing that there's so many also smaller nonprofits that are doing just as incredible work as some of the larger ones, oftentimes more so on the ground than the larger ones, we all need to work together. We cannot do this independently. The large ones can't do it without the small ones. The small ones can't do it without the large ones. We all have to do this together. And that's how health equity, you know, that's how health becomes equitable. Right. Yeah.
0: Can I just say one thing off of that? My last, my other soapbox is that I understand why people consistently donate and volunteer their time with organizations that they've heard of. They donate to the big ones, to like the Planned Parenthood, to the Red Cross, whatever, because they're vetted and they know them. I'm not knocking those organizations, give them money, that's fine. But if you take a chance on a small organization that you haven't heard of, that's deeply embedded in the community and doing work, your $500 donation is going to go a lot farther for them than for a giant organization. So like, take a chance, investigate the local places, look at the small organizations, and consider supporting them and having that impact. You don't have to always donate to the same places over and over again.
1: Thank you for underscoring the importance of that. It's it's something that I truly believe in. It's, it's these grassroots organizations in your local communities that really are doing um, the most valuable work. And again, that's not to take away from the big organizations because those big organizations were once very small too, you know, and it's just a matter of continual and consistent messaging over the course of a great deal of time. I mean, look at the Susan G. Komen Foundation. I think it took 30 years, but now the the rate of breast cancer is way down. There's just so many little organizations that have the ability or, or the capacity to do great work. And we just need to support them more so, I think, than the larger ones. And you're right. The money to those organizations does go a lot further because they work on, on more of a shoestring budget. So thank you for, for raising that. So, Caroline, I'm going to close out with with this one question for each of you. Marissa, I do know your story, but if you could repeat it for listeners. What was it that drove you to do what you're doing, and how has how has this affected your overall health and well-being? Caroline? I mean, I've worked in the reproductive health space for um, almost, I don't know, for,
0: for more than 20 years at this point and have always focused on increasing access to care in low resource settings. Um, I worked internationally and in the U.S. And it's that there, because we have segmented off access to so many things of women's health care, you notice that the barriers that people face to healthcare in general are just so enormously amplified when you're talking about anything that has to do with reproductive health. And the challenges are so much more significant. We know that speaking about the U.S. Women in rural areas are less likely to get access to reproductive health care or prenatal care than people who live in urban centers. And it's just like, it's spectacularly unfair. And that kind of injustice irks me. And that's how I got involved in the space. I started working in Mississippi specifically around like family planning access while, you know, over the last couple of years slash 50 years, watching like access to reproductive health and abortions slowly and and kind of focusing on the states where people are the most vulnerable um, which are the kind of deep south states especially in rural areas where people just can't access anything that they need and what I what I have found working down there and working in kind of states all over the country is that there are people who are doing extraordinary work on the ground fighting the good fight to make sure that people have what they need to survive you know and One of the things that often comes up when we're talking with patients who are explaining why they haven't gotten healthcare or why they don't have insurance, or, you know, they're always, they're always giving us the story. I didn't do this because I couldn't take off work. I lost my insurance because I had to quit my job, X, Y, Z. And what we're always saying to them is like, it's like, it's not your fault. The system is, is built to fail you. This is not something that you did wrong. And working with people, both our team at Plan A and also just all of the amazing clinics I work with, to try to kind of correct that injustice and increase the equity around women's health, I think, is what kind of keeps me going. In terms of what it's done with personal health, it's extremely stressful, and I'm probably losing my mind a little bit. But in general, you know, I think it's just it is it is a constant reminder that you know I get my past mirrors when I'm supposed to, because otherwise I feel like I'm not living up to what I'm trying to encourage other people to do. But yeah, Jennifer.
3: So, I mean, you listen to Marissa, you listen to Caroline, right? I found myself in, uh, you know, this position at Lutech as a sales rep almost a decade ago and just being exposed to all of the amazing people like these two women who are just so passionate about what they're trying to do and their blood, sweat and tears is going into this. And it's really hard not to want to get involved Mm -hmm. from my perspective, I feel like I feel that I'm very fortunate to be in the position that I am in doing something that I love and that has the opportunity to really expand access to care for women and children everywhere. And I feel just being exposed to women like this who are, or anybody like this who's very passionate about this cause makes me want to get involved and um, participate as well, because I think that there's... Just too many people that need access to, mm. to healthcare here in the U.S. and outside, and if there's an opportunity to participate in that, then that's where I want to be. Beautiful, Marissa. Yeah, I mean, I got into this um, solely
2: by accident. I, I've been in healthcare for 23 years. My passion was always women. Um, I started working for a women's health company, the largest in the world, and I was also grateful to to move to Costa Rica with that company, where I saw that women didn't have access to a mammogram machine because it broke down years ago well I just launched the newest fanciest version at, you know at my corporation and women in that country didn't even have access to, you know to to a piece of equipment and so I just I thought that that was just a little you know ridiculous in my mind I'm an, I'm an engineer we solve problems and so um you know so I formed her LTQ many years later and um continue to, make sure that women have access to the healthcare equipment that they need for the non-communicable diseases, because it's exactly, you know, Caroline said it before when women don't have their healthcare, it, translates into their children not going to school, their children also not having everything that they need, women not having as much money to support their families. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know if this is the statistics in the US, but I imagine it it is as well. You know, around the world, 90% of a woman's income at least goes to her family, 45% of a man's does. And so making sure that women are income producing, to provide for their families is incredibly important, but unfortunately, if they're not healthy, they're not able to do that, and they're not able to send their girls to school because um, the girls are the first ones that get pulled out. And as a woman in STEM, I just really just think that is unfair. And uh, that's you know, I can't I can't fix the education system as I'm in healthcare. So Decided to, to to deal with some of the education or some of the healthcare issues. And so, just being able to travel and having the access to do that has opened my eyes up to, to see that there's so much left to do. And it's startling in the U S it's startling around the world. Um, it's not getting, you know, it's getting better in some respects, it's not getting better in so many others and it it needs to consistently get better. And, and that's not happening and making sure that women are healthy is probably part of the solution. uh, I would say it's, it's women and girls who change the world. And they just need their help to be able to do that, and um, and then I think that's what all three of us, actually all four of us, including you, Robin, like are working to do, and that's what needs to happen to to get to this to to the space where you know where you started this, where there is health health equity.
1: Right. Thank you, Marissa. Thank you. And I think that's important to to you know what you said earlier. It's really it's not. I think people, so many of us don't understand the big picture consequence of a woman not being able to get to her cervical cancer screening or her annual mammography. And the the ripple effect is just so detrimental, not only to the woman and and her family, but to everybody. Because if, if a woman can't provide for her family, the kids can't go to school, then there's less productive people in society. I mean it just goes on and on from there. So thank you. Thank you for elevating that that picture for people. I can't thank you enough. This this is I could talk for hours on this subject. So thank you so much for, for being on the Health Ability Project. Listeners, if you enjoyed today's episode, please like us, share us, post on social media. And if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can reach me at the at gmail.com. Thanks very much, and don't forget to tune in next week as we continue our special edition on topics important to women's health. Thanks so much.
0: Thanks for joining us today at the Health Ability Project. We'd love to hear from you, so please email us your questions, comments, or suggestions, including future guests, to the HealthAbility Project at gmail.com. And please like us, subscribe and
1: share us with your friends.